Imagine two, three hundred years ago that you are toiling the fields, you are working under the sun and sweating, and on your right there's your son, 12, 14 years of age, but already strong. You are so proud of him. And as you look around, you realize this is your life. This is his life and the life of his descendants, just as it was the life of your father and grandfather. And you would be so right. Statistically speaking, 99% of humanity lived that kind of life. But little by little, changes would accumulate. Technological changes that wouldn't be visible within a single generation, but they would spread. And the world that you are living in today is shaped by those changes and actually the changes of the changes. Technology is accelerating and we recognize that it is enough to look around, whether it is in the communication systems, whether it is in the way we uh, eat or entertain ourselves, the way we work. My name is David Orban and this podcast will analyze what are the implications of accelerating technological change. And here with me is Hannes. Hello, Hannes, my co-host in the podcast. Hi, David. It's wonderful to be here with you. And I'm very excited to be analyzing and working to map out what, how exponential technologies really are impacting society, business, and our own lives. The, the lives uh, are going in a direction. And the direction is through time. What I like to say is that we are actually time travelers. One minute per minute, we are going towards a future that all of us will inhabit. And since that place is something that we are going to share, it is important to understand it. And if we understand it, it is important to ask ourselves the question, can we choose? Is it possible to shape what place are we going to inhabit in a few years or in a few decades? And if we can do that, what are the conditions to do so in order to build desirable futures? I, my opinion on this, David, is that we certainly live in marvelous times in the sense that our individual capabilities to really shape that future has never been bigger. The resources that we as individuals or as organizations can access today, uh, the technologies that we have that really enable us to change our future and to change the course of society, the course of civilization. Uh, you know, we live in absolutely wonderful times, but these are also times of you know, greater uncertainty than ever, but uh, great excitement and possibility for those of us who see this as very promising opportunities. So uh, for me, this is part of uh, what I do uh, every day, actually, um, understanding technologies and their implications. Uh, just to tell uh, a few things about me for those who, who don't know me and find uh, the podcast uh, searching online. Uh, I am uh, the managing partner of Network Society Ventures, which is a seed stage uh, venture capital firm. Uh, I was part of the group that designed the uh, Singularity University 10 years ago in California. And I, I love 
both talking about these topics, listening uh, to these topics, but also do something about them. For me, an important part of our capacity to, to act and shape the future, as, as you said, Hannes, is that we can get our hands dirty. We can get engaged. We don't need to be passive observers or comment, maybe, but we can get active. Tell me a little bit about you and what are your passions? Right. So, David, what gets me out of bed in the morning is this very idea that we can apply technology to really change the world around us and ourselves. Uh, in my daily work, I work as a company advisor uh, in Sweden and across the world, helping uh, corporates and organizations navigating technological change. I'm traveling the world, uh, talking about how tech is impacting not least uh, our human bodies and our human psyches. And uh, I'm also one of the founders of the Biohackers Association here in Sweden, where in absolute practice, we're getting our hands dirty and experimenting with uh, various technologies on ourselves. Uh, so this is what makes me um, excited about uh, whatever I can get my hands on in terms of new tech. and. Um, I like especially to combine the theories and big philosophical questions with very practical exercises. Uh, this capacity of uh, uh, waking up uh, to the opportunities and the challenges of, of, of our time is something that I hope more and more people share. It is an accelerating uh, feeling that uh, you are not powerless. You are powerful and empowered by technology. Uh, and it is a somewhat uh, recent feeling, even if humanity has been having a huge impact uh, for, for a long time. Actually, um, Paul Kurtzen, the chemist uh, who won a Nobel Prize for identifying uh, and then coordinating the intervention to, um, uh, to close up again the ozone hole, that was uh, caused by the hydrochlorocarbons uh, uh, that uh, were emitted by our uh, industrial uh, appliances and refrigerators, he gave the name of uh, the geological era that we are inhabiting. He called it the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene obviously meaning uh, the age of humans. And I think this is a very fitting name. The very definition of the Anthropocene is that it is... Uh, the age where humans, where mankind is the uh, the most powerful geological force on the planet. We are not just reshaping the surface of the planet with fields and roads and buildings, but we're really also, through technology, altering the chemistry of the oceans and the very makeup of the atmosphere. Uh, the International Geological uh, Society is now debating uh, what should be uh, the indicator that uh, millions of years from now uh, will uh, be found, if uh, anybody will be around to do so, uh, to indicate the start of the Anthropocene. And they are picking on the year 1963, uh, that is the peak of atmospheric nuclear experiments, explosions with nuclear bombs, because they created 
uh, artificial radioactive isotopes that depositing all over the surface create a, a layer that will will uh, uh, will be possible to be identified in the future as well. Right, a million years from now, when someone is drilling down the earth, they will see this very clear border. This is when the humans got kicking. <laughs> Hopefully, there will not be a second layer, a, a little bit on top of it, with the more massive nuclear uh, disaster, uh, you know, ending the very short age of the Anthropocene. Yeah, well, uh, we will talk about this uh, probably more, but uh, absolutely, uh, how technological civilizations build knowledge and with knowledge power and how they use that power is one of the most important questions of our era. Enrico Fermi, the Italian physicist, um, formulated that uh, and now it is called the Fermi Paradox. Uh, I imagine him in the uh, New Mexico desert uh, with Oppenheimer um, smoking a cigarette, uh, uh, looking up at the stars uh, with the confidence that all the Hungarians uh, in the lab were still working on the Manhattan Project uh, while they were uh, just uh, looking around. And Fermi would say to Oppenheimer, where is everybody? thinking about the aliens. And it was even before uh, uh, unidentified uh, flying objects were a mania, uh, because it is reasonable to expect uh, in a Keplerian relativity uh, point of view that just as biology and technology and our civilization arose on Earth, there should be and there would be other civilizations out there, but we cannot see them. We cannot see their electromagnetic emissions. And that question is uh, bothersome because your point of civilizations destroying themselves is non-trivial. Non uh, it, mm -hmm. it could happen. It could happen to us and it could happen to those that we don't see because that is, that is what was apparently their destiny. We don't know. Yeah, this is certainly the flip side of powerful technologies becoming bro more broadly and broadly, broadly available, that uh, a single individual can have such immense destructive powers in their hands that it may threaten the very survival of, of the civilization as we know it. But um, I think we should cover that in a later episode of this uh, uh, podcast, David. There are I a lot am... of things that 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 we will talk about. I'm <laughs> sure we are so excited. I actually I am excited just uh, thinking about uh, uh, the the cool conversations that we will that we will have. Uh, what are some other technologies uh, and and questions that you would like to discuss uh, in in future episodes? So, David, uh, the technologies that. I find most exciting at the time right now is definitely the transformation of biology into information technology, uh, or as we colloquially uh, say, uh, digital biology. Biology is and has always been an information system of transferring information, I mean, through nerve cells or through uh, biochemical processes. But what is new is that we can now measure and read and even write and edit these processes uh, as human operators. And uh, this, is, this is bigger than when life crawled out of the oceans and onto land, because now we are really putting ourselves in the driver's seat of biological evolution. And uh, 
I am surprised that not more people are, uh, you know, up in arms or, uh, you know, that they are understanding the massive implications of this. So I would love to get uh, a deeper conversation going between you and me and between all the listeners here on how digital biology will impact uh, the world as we know it. Uh, on my side, artificial intelligence, blockchain, uh, the Internet of Things, and the implications of uh, exponential technologies, which for me can be identified in the decentralization of our very socio-economic organization, uh, are some of the topics that I, I will want to, to, to discuss. But uh, one of the things that uh, you said uh, I think is worth uh, highlighting. Uh, it is in the very nature of exponential change that the latest uh, trend that you identify is actually in a quantitative manner, mathematically, more important, not only with respect to the previous uh, change or, or mechanism that you may have identified, but actually more important than the sum of all of the changes that came before. So uh, the, the, the fact that uh, the universe was born and then stars formed and then uh, planets around the stars and then life came about and then uh, humanity arose, all of those things were evidently very important. But the things that we are about to do, those are more important than not all of the implications of every stage in the universe that happened before. Right, all that has led up to this point and giving us these marvelous tools is definitely just a ramp up. Question is, where is the takeoff point and where this turns into something that we that really can't imagine or we can't understand? Um, up to now, we have been um, in this situation where, uh, from, a, from, a, from a biological point of view, quite unique. Uh, we are the uh, only... Uh, technological species uh, on the planet and you know I personally think that uh, we have been ruthless enough uh, to either kill or drive to extinction other intelligent species that maybe were more uh, peaceful than, than we are less aggressive and arrogant but here we are living under the illusion that our intelligence and smarts uh, is the pinnacle of uh, everything and anything that biology could produce or technology could produce. And some of us justify this uh, hubris based on metaphysical explanations uh, that, uh, oh yeah, the uniqueness of the human soul is underpinning uh, our uh, uh, status. Uh, there are others that uh, hand wave uh, around this uh, situation uh, saying that, uh, yeah, the human brain is uh, so complex, we will never be able to understand it. And as a consequence, we will remain alone being uh, this uh, uh, intelligent um, entity. Uh, but uh, I don't subscribe to either of those views. No, I mean, it's quite obvious that uh, if you look at uh, humans and our marvelous brains, there are certainly uh, many flaws. If, if we look ourselves in the mirror, we have uh, uh, many dimensions of, of human limitations. I mean, our short-sightedness, our 
limited abilities to understand things that are not in front of our noses or things that are too abstract. Um, and our, our ways and how we empathize with people in limited circles. There are, once you take that perspective on things, you, you realize that, of course, humans, as we know them now, Homo sapiens, as of this day and age, is just one step following all the other steps that have been taken and that there will be further steps taken. One observation that is worth uh, making uh, is that uh, in our culture, uh, nature is admired to an extent that sometimes it doesn't deserve. Uh, ethically, for example, uh, where we believe that uh, whatever nature does is good and as a consequence it should be admired or preserved. And uh, I don't think smallpox needs uh, my admiration or respect. And the fact that we uh, were able to drive smallpox to extinction uh, is, I think, a crowning achievement of uh, coordinated um, progress in, in, in human civilization. Uh, and, and another misconception is that evolution produces optimal outcomes. The only thing evolution cares about is the transmission of uh, genes to the next generation. So any solution that it stumbles upon, as long as it is sufficient under the conditions of the local environment to transfer the genes to the next generation, will be just fine. And evolution will stop uh, caring about any other alternative unless it is better and can outcompete the first. So that is why, as you observed, so many of the solutions that we see in our bodies or in our cognitive functions, the way we reason, uh, are ridiculously uh, suboptimal. Because yeah, it's they designed flaws. Yeah. Yeah, it, they were, uh, I like to point out often that I mean, the human skeleton is designed as a quadriplag. We are supposed to be walking on four legs. We are, you know, it's obvious from the design that we have stood up and walked on the two hind legs. And that is why every single human I know uh, have back problems because we're not supposed to, I mean, uh, to walk on two legs. Uh, if we would design a being walking on two legs, it would have a very different balance system. Yeah, and, and uh, talking about uh, cognitive abilities and our intelligence, uh, our brains uh, grew to a certain size and then they didn't stop growing because uh, there is no possibility of being more intelligent possibly with a bigger brain. Our brain stopped growing because the cranium containing it couldn't be given birth uh, through the birth canal of the human female and her um, skeleton skeletal structure uh, already when we give birth when when females of our species give birth actually their um, uh, their skeleton physically stretches uh, uh, in order to 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 be able and complete the process uh, which is at the limits and this is still even in our times a dangerous and risky process of giving birth both for woman and child and uh, I think it's somewhat surprising that we still continue with this as a status quo of, uh, of delivering children because of the huge risks involved. We have very powerful mechanisms that are non-biological but cultural 
and uh, we are very attached to the roots of our culture because we believe continuity in them uh, is a proof of adaptation that we shouldn't discard, similarly to the fact that uh, our uh, bodies uh, and its uh, chemistry or, or its uh, mechanisms should be respected because they represent a continuity. Challenging that assumption uh, is interesting by itself. Now, obviously, uh, there is an immense uh, responsibility uh, around these questions. And the ethical considerations around what are the implications of these choices are fundamentally important. Uh, I am not uh, trained as a philosopher, uh, but uh, I think that uh, pretty soon, um, especially with uh, uh, powerful artificial intelligence becoming the tool set of every organization that wants to survive um, uh, in terms of global competition, uh, hiring a philosopher will be as commonplace as having a chief information officer in today's companies because every decision's uh, ethical implication will be amplified by the power of the tools that uh, these organizations will yield. But is it ultimately philosophers then you want, David, or is it ethicists or... Uh... Uh, well, I mean, the, the, a philosopher will always, if you ask them what is the problem and what is the solution, the solution I of, most often get is that we need more philosophers to think deeper about this problem. So it's sort of a self-growing uh, uh, solution uh, to apply philosophers to any problem. Uh, absolutely. We have to keep them in check. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> all of humanity will be transformed into, into, into philosophers, right? It would be kind of beautiful in some way, ultimately, if we, the machines take care of the ground service and then we all turn to philosophy. Uh, that is what uh, a greatly admired civilization in ancient uh, Greek uh, was uh, supposedly doing, except that, of course, they were also incredibly cruel and barbaric uh, under our current evaluation because they were able to philosophize uh, in the Athenian squares uh, because 90% of the people were either slaves or indentured servants and uh, they were doing the hard work, uh, and that is what enabled a sliver of, I don't know, 1% uh, of the population to think about uh, deep uh, questions that we are still uh, preoccupying ourselves with. And talking about slavery, I do think that a great illustration of how human progress is real can be found on the fact that slavery is illegal all over the planet. Uh, because it was quite normal, actually it was necessary to have slaves in the past. Anything that you had to build, well, somebody had to uh, work in the mines, move the rocks, build the building. And if, if you ask the slave if his life were just, the answer would be easy. No, it is horrible. But the follow-up question would be laughable. Can you imagine a civilization that doesn't have slaves? The person would not have an answer or the answer would be maybe to punch you in the face because it was a stupid question. Everybody knows that slaves are necessary. Slavery is, is universal. But here we are. We have been able to build a civilization where machines are doing 
what slaves to be doing. And I think that is uh, really important to remember because it also begs the question, what are the dogmatic assumptions our society holds today that will be proven laughably wrong in the future through the application of new technologies that will be also very powerful and powerfully liberating. Yeah, what do you think they are, David? I love progressive automation. You know, if you go to a kindergarten and you ask the children, do you want to grow up and be a truck driver and for 30, 40 years of your life uh, just stare at the road and be afraid that when you uh, fall asleep, you will kill yourself and, and other people through a, a, an accident. Nobody will tell you that is what they want to do when they grow up. Or if you look at uh, uh, office work, you know, white collar work, uh, it is basically moving a piece of paper from the left side to the right side uh, through processes that are as well defined as possible uh, so that you can reliably do that for all of your life. And this is just, you know, a couple of examples of a dehumanizing situation. So computers can drive cars and trucks. Wonderful. Let's do them. And uh, uh, computers can um, decide the processes that, uh, uh, that define what is uh, uh, this uh, office work. Uh, that is also what they should be doing. So uh, I am looking forward to that kind of change. So to liberate humans from uh, routine work tasks is, seems like a definitely a necessary next step. But what's your view, David, on liberating other sentient beings from those that often live in miserable conditions? Do you see this also as a societal imperative? Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a hypocrite uh, because I'm a carnivore. Uh, but I do recognize that uh, the cultural heritage that makes me eat uh, meat uh, should be abandoned. Uh, uh, I like it uh, and uh, I, I will be very, very happy to eat any kind of artificial food that will stop me uh, uh, supporting uh, the uh, industry that kills billions of uh, chickens and pigs and cows, um, which I recognize as inhumane and barbaric. So I am totally sure that uh, in the future, whether it is 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, we will look back and recognize that uh, this was a, a pretty, pretty bad situation and we will be happy to have overcome it. Pretty, pretty barbaric, but which took uh, mankind through a certain step in our civilization where we could feed upon uh, meat and grow the population. But yeah, I, I have a similar position like yourself. I'd like to formulate it the way that I am a believer, but perhaps not always a practitioner. So it's like you may be religious, but you don't go to church every Sunday. And unfortunately, there are practical dimensions of, of uh, uh, you know, what you eat. Uh, and it, it, it will be, makes it harder. It will be paradoxical that from the point of view of the species, chicken, pigs, cows, and a few others are some of the most successful species on the planet uh, because of their number. 
Uh, mm. If you measure success in numbers in pure biomass, correct. Chickens are pretty successful. And 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 in that sense, evolution doesn't care about the suffering of the individual. Similarly to how the invention of agriculture uh, created a, a, a life for humans that was inferior than not the hunter-gatherer lifestyle before, as measured in the average height of the individuals that declined because their um, life was was uh, uh, more brutal uh, than But than we got before. an increase in numbers, didn't we, through the agricultural revolution. So the overall biomass of humans probably increased. Exactly. Uh, Absolutely. Because, because the carrying capacity of a given area of land, if you are a hunter, hunter and, and gatherer, is probably three orders of magnitude lower than not the carrying capacity of the same area of land if you live in an agricultural society. And that is why, rather than being a few million individuals per continent, we are now billions of individuals per continent. And growing. And David, I'd like to uh, perhaps round off uh, today's session with saying, since you made the pledge uh, just now, that you'd be very open to... Uh, moving over to artificial substitutes of uh, eating live animals. I am at the moment working on a project of growing artificial meat. And I'd love to, uh, the next time we meet, treat you to a meal uh, based on artificial grown meat. I will be more than happy to accept and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, thank you very much, Hannes, for this uh, um, session. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot and uh, looking forward to our next one. Likewise, uh, thank you very much and let's talk soon everyone.